Hey everybody, welcome to Fearless Paranoia Podcast, where we are busy demystifying the complex world of cybersecurity. We appreciate you for listening to us. I'm Brian, the cybersecurity attorney. And I'm Ryan, and I'm a cybersecurity architect. And hopefully we can really bring this episode's topic home to everybody, because we want to talk about something that's not necessarily just a complex cybersecurity concept or term or specific event going on in the world. We're going to talk about something that is plaguing IT departments, you know, IS departments, CISOs, and by extension, the C-suite and anyone who has to deal with or worry about technology resources in a company today. And that is the I'm going to say epidemic of exhaustion and I don't, I mean, Ryan, overburdened, overworked. What do you think? How would you categorize this issue? I think that you could use any number of colorful terms to really describe it, but it is, yeah, exhaustion, burnout. Burnout's a good one. Yeah. Burnout works. uh, Worn out. Yeah, I think it comes down to, we go back to the, you know, the famous quote from Lord of the Rings and it's too little butter spread over too much bread. It comes down to a point of the cybersecurity and the IT landscape has modernized and grown and sprawled so expansively over the course of the last couple decades. And we've always maintained such a shortage in most of these technical industries to keep up, not just with the need to expand and the need to adopt new technologies, but the need to modernize those technologies. And now the need to secure those technologies as we've gone and connected them together in very less than secure ways. Haphazard. And again, only haphazard because it, it was uncharted territory before. We had never really gotten to the point of connecting all these things together in such mass as we did. And securing Security wasn't a mindset because when things weren't connected, really the only security layer you had to be concerned with was the physical security layer. You, you kept the door locked where the server was, and if you kept the building secure, the network was secure. But now these are all... Yeah, security, security by design only makes sense when there's a design for security. Or, or problems from a lack of security. And initially, when the internet first went up, I mean, there were people that were doing their best to, you know, test the networks and test the security of those systems, but the number of those people and the ability for them to transit those networks broadly and quickly like they can nowadays was small. It was very limited. Back in the days of like the Kevin Mitnick hack, he was really one of- Rest in peace. Yeah, he was one of the few. He was one of the very few that were doing what he was doing back in those days. But now in today's internet, anybody can go to GitHub, can go to the dark web, can go to blogs, can go anywhere and just download offensive security tools, testing tools tools, suites of tools that give them immense amounts of capabilities on the internet. Well, immense amount of targets too. In 1987, how many people regularly access banking information via a computer with a modem attached to a phone line? Not very many. No, and because of that, the services were not robust the way they are nowadays. But with you know the advent of the proper internet and everybody getting online, and especially in the age of smart devices and you know the capability to connect to that network in the palm of your hand from pretty much anywhere at any point, those services have grown in number dramatically. And again, some of them, hopefully, and especially banking, comes together with you know a secure by design mindset because it needs to. They've got some pretty important things to protect. A lot of the other assets on the internet not as much they didn't come with that design in place because the goal was to get published the goal was to actually get the tool available it wasn't to get it available in a very nice tight secure manner which is why the facebook pixel managed to just lift medical information off of millions of people's portals i want to talk about this subject and i want to make sure that we talk about it in a way that's clear and understandable so first ryan we're going to talk about this in a few different steps i want first to talk about what 
burnout looks like. And when you see someone who is burned out, what does that mean for that person? And what is causing that burnout? Then next, I want to talk about what are the impacts of having a burned out and exhausted IT department. And then last, I want to talk about what can be done to at least mitigate some of these problems. We're never going to resolve the issue of IT exhaustion in a world where everyone has more and more responsibilities for the same pay and for the same job. Let's start by talking about what does burnout in the IT industry look like? It looks it looks, it looks like most IT departments right now. Um, no, uh, the, seriously, you start to notice things. I have staff that work for me, and part of one of my jobs as being an effective and decent manager of people is to identify what this really looks like and go down the steps we're going to talk about now. So looking at people I've worked with in the past, people I work with now, a few of the main indicators I look for for uh, identifying burnout is things like presence online. Most of us have relatively non-standard work days in the IT industry because uh, computers live 24-7. And so if you don't have the size and breadth of a technical team that can be mindful of things around the clock. You know, if you don't have geolocated people scattered across the full circumference of the globe to be able to kind of have people on duty at all points in times or don't have multiple shifts to cover those uh, and kind of follow the sun, you start to recognize when people that normally operate on, say, like a eight to four, nine to five type of schedule start to be present on company systems later at night or on weekends. And this is usually, usually comes down to loyalty of an employee and dedication of an employee and they're doing their best to try and make sure that all of the boxes get checked, all of the tasks get done, all of the SLAs get met, but they put that onus on themselves. And so they start to work outside of those odd or those regular business hours at odd times to try and finish covering the gap. And that's a real big one because that dedication and that loyalty is something that really needs to be valued. And when it's allowed to be kind of taken for granted after time where it's either not rewarded or not mitigated in some fashion leads directly into things like burnout and eventually it, people will hit a wall from just working and dedicating their life to a business if they don't see some sort of growth of their position in that business or in their pay or their comp structure or something like that to help offset that and reward that eventually they just start to look for greener pastures which is let me find another place where i can reset and start back at a eight to four nine to five again that's interesting what you raised there is i think most businesses today, hell today, most businesses in general would look at an employee who is willing to go, I hate using a cliche phrase like the extra mile, but who's willing to do a little bit extra work in order to make sure their job is done as either a good employee or in a lot of cases that I know as an employee, especially if they're a salaried worker, doing what they're supposed to do to finish the job. Now, of course, seeing someone working a little bit late once a month or one week out of the month is probably a sign that you have someone who is having a little trouble finishing everything they need to during the regular business day or is just being a little bit more careful, a little bit more proactive, a little bit more loyal to the business, interested in getting the things done. When you start seeing them doing it constantly, it means that they can't accomplish their job in their standard business hours. And we should start looking that less as sign of a dedicated employee and more as a potential warning sign for someone who has the potential to burn out. Well, exactly. It just means that the either something has changed with their ability to perform the workload at a pace 
that they were doing before and now that's starting to require extra effort uh, or extra time or the workload has changed in such a way which is more common usually that now they don't have the time necessary to be able to do it at the same pace they did before or within the same time frames as before because either the workload has escalated or changed in its nature or its volume and in those cases that's when you need to start judging whether or not you have the right amount of resources in place and i think that as it and technical sides of companies tend to get more complex and mature more and get more connected the natural progression there is just like as a city or a community grows you need more resources you need more infrastructure the same goes too with as a business grows and as they get more and more connected you need more technical resources and capacity to be able to handle the workloads that come with that and that's something that again management needs to assess on a more regular basis and not just assume that because everything is still getting done you know hey we've grown 50 percent in our amount of business and our amount of throughput this year but we have the same number of people and the job's still getting done so we're good we don't need to make further investment is a common oversight just because your people will step up and finish connecting those dots and and carrying that extra burden doesn't mean that it's right to continue to do that so either you need to look at that as being a judge of not just whether the work is getting done but is the work getting done how many resources do we have going on to it and what does that workload look like year over year as far as volume and complexity so that you can make sure that you understand the work that's being done and the impact it could potentially be having You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. For more information on keeping yourself, your family, and your company protected against cyber threats, check out the Resilience Cybersecurity and Data Privacy blog. If you're enjoying this podcast, please like and subscribe using any of your favorite podcast platforms. Also, please share this podcast with anyone you think would find it helpful or useful. We rely on listeners like you to help get the word out about this show, and we appreciate the support. Now, time for some more cybersecurity. There's a report that was done titled A False Sense of Cybersecurity, How Feeling Safe Can Sabotage Your Business, that they interviewed cybersecurity personnel. And this is from the UK, but as far as it goes, I would expect to find the exact same here. And it's more than half of organizations believe that their security staff are, and this was as challenged, stressed, frustrated, and or exhausted, and that it is only a matter of time before mistakes are made and some are burnt out and ready to quit. You just discussed kind of one of the big red flags that you notice when people are spending more time outside of their normal business hours. Obviously, it's IT, so you probably have some people who are working. I joke about, you know, on the East Coast, whenever I'm handling a data breach response management, I feel like I'm working Asia Pacific time because hackers attack on weekends and hackers attack at night. And so you're going to have IT people who are generally dedicated to those times. But you're talking about when they're working outside of their specified and traditional range. In your experience in looking at these in the IT industry right now, what is causing the burnout? Oh, 51% is a lot. And I think some people may roll their eyes and say, okay, 51% of people believe that they are tired or whatever. This isn't individuals themselves. These are people leading IT departments saying that their people are challenged, stressed, frustrated, and exhausted. What is at the root of this? Is it just that there aren't enough people? I think there's numerous stressors. And actually, I think 51% is probably an understated number too. From my conversations with a lot of my peers in the industry, uh, my peers being both staff managers of technical departments or just other technical users, 
that are part of the technical organizations at different companies. I can't think of really too many that probably haven't expressed that they've experienced some level of burnout, whether it's ongoing or whether it's temporary over the last few years, especially since 2020 with COVID lockdown and all of the things that occurred there. It changed the dynamic of how technical departments operate. Prior to that, a lot of businesses were your traditional on-site, on-prem type of business. Everything Mm -hmm. was behind a firewall in a data center somewhere, and it was really tight perimeters. Plus, all your people were all inside that same perimeter. And so it got a lot easier to just build the wall, protect the wall, and that kind of was the end of it. You dealt with your problems on the inside, and you could walk up to a person to deal with the problem. Everything was kind of close to home. And that provided a level of comfort, because that's kind of how the industry had operated for a long time. But it also made things a lot simpler. Ever since COVID, we all scattered and went home, and businesses needed to continue to operate, right? So we had to poke holes in that wall to get services to users. We had to poke holes in that wall to get users to services. We had to find ways to let users still work effectively with all of those technologies that were really close before and now we had to do things like deal with their home internet connections and getting them to those services uh we had to deal with their throughput issues you just said something there that i'm going to use in the future the uh, notion that allowing someone to work remote was not an extension of the wall around that person but rather a miniature breach in the wall in order to let that person access what's protected behind it poking holes in the wall i think that's actually a really good metaphor well and that's really what it was in the end because there is no feasible way for a company of any significant size to extend the internal protections and wrap remote users into it safely and securely without owning the connection going straight into each of their home work offices. It's not financially responsible or scalable to be able to do anything. Not only that, you're also assuming that you can extend all of your own technical security along with those new lines. You're assuming someone's going to maintain the same level of operational security at their home computer even on a dedicated line as they would on their work computer sitting in an office. And I just think all else being the same, you change someone's location from the office to their home. If everything is identical, they are still going to act in a manner that is less secure. Even if the intent isn't less secure, the intent is more comfortable in most cases. And more comfortable is what what leads to complacency, which leads to lack of security. And that's fine. I mean, there's probably some sort of expectation that, uh, I'll be honest, I've been working from home for a while now. And am I more comfortable at home? Yes. But am I more secure at home than I'm in an office? Probably not more so, but I do my best to be equally as secure. But again, I'm in the field. I'm in the midst of this every day. So I understand the importance of that with a unique perspective that I do not have an expectation that everybody else would have. And so that's why it has to come a mixture of training, a mixture of culture, and a mixture of technical controls to kind of find the right balance and protect the right things in those types of instances. Because again, it's not one-to-one scalable. So the whole game shifted in 2020. And here, three years later, a lot of us are finally just at a point where we're getting caught up with modernizing our procedures, our policies, our technical controls, our technical tools, our people, our scale, etc., to be able to handle this new style of connectivity, this new environment that we've walked into. And that that required a lot of relearning of old ways. That required IT and technical teams to not just 
change the way they do business, but to change user concept. And- yeah, invent new ways to do business in a lot of ways. Well, and you had to bring the users with you, right? So now it was on us to teach the users how to connect via VPN, how to use collaborative <laughs> tools that they didn't have to use before. There wasn't anybody else helping us with this. In the most cases, there were very few times was there like a technical educator to come and like help change the culture of how a company worked. No, that fell on the IT department too. And I don't want to knock IT folks, but again, growing up being heavily in in the tech world like I've been, I was never a super social person until just recently. And most of that was by force. It was by nature of a requirement of my job, a necessity to really break out of my shell and become good at talking to people, like to the point where I can do podcasts nowadays. But I started out (laughs) antisocial and most of us are very much like that still, which means we were not good people to be delivering that information to end users in a way that was reasonable. And we had to balance that with making the technical changes too. It was a lot of onus put on a very small group of people people that weren't probably the best ones to be doing all of those pieces. It was a spot where there could have been some additional capacity put in and some additional help in the right areas. There's a really good parallel there because anyone who has listened to any of the basic criticism of modern policing in the United States has heard that in most other developed nations, the jobs that we in the United States give to the police as first responders and emergency responders are often divided up among a whole host of different people, most of whom have specialized training just to deal with the one narrow area of focus they deal with. We in the U.S. just call 911 and expects the cops to come and, you know, expect them to handle any one of these situations. Same thing is true. You can't expect that to work when it's simply not what the system itself is designed to do. Now, there's some interesting commentary uh, in the study discussing sort of the cybersecurity skills gap. Is this something that you see as well, or is this something that is not as related to this problem as this study seems to suggest? The cybersecurity skills gap is something that gets brought up before me often, and I've got a lot of opinions on it as well. Everybody does, and there's different views of it. I honestly think the couple biggest problems with the cybersecurity staffing shortage and skills gap or skills shortage comes down to a couple primary things. First of all, most cybersecurity jobs tend to be looked at as being relatively higher comp, higher paying positions. And a lot of that has fallen because certain businesses have got immense need for those skills and are willing to and able to pay pretty heavily for those. They've set the bar in a certain place. People need to understand a couple things. First of all, there's a lot of cybersecurity work that can be done without having an immense skill set already in cybersecurity. I don't think that it requires a ton of experience and a ton of training to get into and to be successful in cybersecurity, depending on what path you particularly choose. I think where the main skills gap comes in is there's a big misunderstanding in a lot of the cybersecurity field as people start to try to enter it on what it is and what the options and possibilities are. A lot of people I see that are coming into cybersecurity for the first time and don't really know what they're interested in. The first thing they want to do is be a hacker. They want to be a penetration tester. They want to be a red teamer. They want to go and do the sexy stuff in cybersecurity. Those are relatively limited positions. They're harder to come by. I would think they actually require a pretty heightened skill set too. Well, to, to some extent, the nice part is, is like with a lot of the industry, and I'm not going to knock red teamers here because there's a lot of important work they do. And some of the best red teamers are mm-hmm. highly technical and they are great scripters, great programmers. Uh, they know their systems. They know their attack paths very well. There is still a significant portion of the work that they do that is tool-based and can be automated. And you can learn to at least be a junior penetration tester without a ton of effort by learning how those tools work. But the problem is, is red team is also specialized 
composed in such a way that in order to be really effective at it, you kind of have to understand more than just how the tools work and what they are. You have to know how the underlying systems work. You need to understand what the different types of data uses are, how authentication works in multiple different ways, because it's not the same everywhere. It's unique in a lot of places you go, different configurations, and you need to learn how to exploit that once you understand how it works. So getting to that level requires much more skill. And I think a lot of people jump in and they want to get to those really highly skilled positions because again, those are the sexy jobs. But there's a lot of other positions where people can start building the foundation. You may start in at a, a slightly different level and doing a different type of work, but there's much easier paths, I guess, to get into cybersecurity, looking at things like getting into blue team work, endpoint security management, server security, firewall and IAM security roles for people that aren't heavily technical and don't come out of like a stronger IT background. Things like GRC, getting into risk and compliance and governance is a good way to get started because it gives you an opportunity to start getting at least your hands on some of the technical controls and learning what audit requirements are and learning what the needs of a business are so that you can start developing your skill set based upon those. The other big problem with the skills gap is because that a lot of these roles, a lot of businesses, it's really easy for them to say, hey, we can't find anybody to fill these roles. And you take a look and they've got a roll up for a junior penetration tester and they want a PhD in cybersecurity and they want seven different certifications, all of which if a person hasn't worked for a cybersecurity company before would have cost them three to five grand or more to obtain. And they want them to come in with 25 years experience for a junior role for a industry that probably hasn't even been around for 25 years. I may have overstated some of those numbers, but... Yeah, Al Franken in one of his books had a chapter titled How to Overload a LexisNexis Search. So if you wanted to say that there's no newspaper covered this subject, you use the terms for the subject and then add like five more. And then it's when it yields no results, you say, yep, no one covered it. I think it was years ago, and I, I probably will misstate this one, but I think it was like the Go programming language, Golang, something like that. There was a person who had posted on Twitter back then that said, hey, I just applied for this job and got turned down for it because they wanted 12 plus years of experience with Golang. Well, I wrote Golang nine years ago, so I don't think anyone's going to qualify. <laughs> and it's that kind of unrealistic expectation. But at the same point in time, too, one other thing I've run into in a lot of uh, places with, especially with cybersecurity is gatekeeping. There's just a lot of it that goes on in the industry. People don't want to let you in to be part of one of these teams without having enough experience to speak at the exact same level as everybody else, because they get to a certain point, a lot of these people, and they forget that they all started somewhere also. And that without that ramp up of experience and that ramp up of opportunity, they wouldn't necessarily be where they're at either. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. We're here to help make the complex language of cybersecurity understandable. So if there are topics or issues that you'd like Ryan and I to break down in an episode, send us an email at info at fearlessparanoia.com or reach out to us on Facebook or LinkedIn. For more information about today's episode, be sure to check out fearlessparanoia.com where you'll find a full transcript as well as links to helpful resources and any research and reports discussed during the episode. While you're there, check out our other posts and podcasts as well as additional helpful resources for learning about cybersecurity. Now back to the show. I want to talk about what the consequences of burnout are. One of the crazy lines from this research said that over 40% of cybersecurity leaders feel like they have limited capabilities and expertise to fully understand the threats they face. Okay, so that's one saying that basically they don't have time to keep up with everything that's going on. So the next is a further 43% say they have some little or no capabilities or expertise to detect and respond to potential threats in their IT environments. Now that one is 
not having the the people or the tools available should the attack come. And then one in four saying that they have limited capability or expertise to respond effectively to an incident at all. So that's three different major implications to burnout. One being that all of a sudden your IT team is not going to have the time. I mean, as someone who has to keep up with data privacy law and cybersecurity law, it's a full-time job for me almost just keeping up with the changes day to day. So that's hard and I can definitely understand that. But then being able to say beyond that, you don't know what's coming. You don't have the tools, the personnel to handle it when it does come. Or the scary scenario for one in four, that they may not be able to effectively respond to an incident at all. What are your thoughts on this survey and also how else you believe this burnout can be affecting the rest of us and the world at large? Sure. Let's touch on some of those. Again, years ago when everything was behind like a nice tight perimeter and you were working in the office and you had your data center, you had a server guy, you had a firewall guy, you had a security guy or gal or whatever, but you had one person kind of filling each of these different kind of roles and like that was your team, right? But like the technologies were limited. You had your own applications that you used internally. You didn't really bring in a lot of new stuff. There wasn't a ton of change for a lot of years. Then everything exploded. We all connected to the internet. Speeds got faster mobile got faster, mobile got more prevalent and ubiquitous like it is now. And now we're at this point where there's cloud services all over the place. AWS, Azure, and GCP all stepped up in huge ways and changed the way that the market works. Now that there's SaaS offerings everywhere, a lot of this stuff, instead of you running software locally, is all running as a service somewhere. And it changed the way things work. So now you can't just have a cloud person, a firewall person, a server person. You need to have somebody who's also an AWS expert, a GCP expert, someone that knows Kubernetes, somebody that understands uh, PowerShell and administration. You need to have an IM person. You need to, it's expanded so much in so many different ways. And in a lot of cases, a lot of businesses weren't in a position to be able to just start saying, okay, we'll just hire these seven new people to fill these seven new needs that we have. Who from our current team can start taking on all these different duties? And that's where they started to just kind of play Plinko at some points, right? Where they just kind of take this new thing to the top of the board, you drop it down and say, hey, who knows how to kind of do this thing. And so, you know, all of a sudden a sysadmin will step up and be like, oh yeah, I kind of been playing around with Kubernetes in my home lab. And it's like, bam, guess what? You're the Kubernetes guy now. And that's how the roles have kind of matured over the course of years. And like that right there, very few times was that met with additional compensation, additional capacity, maybe a junior person to help out with the extra workload, investment in automation to try and take some of that extra workload and find ways to automate it so we can keep the actual physical manual workload reasonable. Those weren't, those are all great concepts concepts, but they were very rarely ever the actual reality. And so burnout comes from starting to like hop onto webcasts and what, you know, teams meetings and things nowadays with your employees and looking at them and you see bags under their eyes. You start to notice the physical changes, you know, uh, hair not getting cut as frequently, people just looking like they haven't slept in days. Um, you start to see work quality kind of slip. And these are all... Well, I think anyone who's done any kind of technical or tight skill related work, as soon as you get a little bit tired, it's the fine details where mistakes start sneaking in. And I would think that when it comes to cybersecurity, the finer details of your security team, not something you want to be left undone. The finer details are where the important details of security really lie, right? You can get alerts all day long and a lot of times you end up with a bunch of false positives, a bunch of known things. It's all those little things that slip through the cracks quietly that are the ones that 
are the most impactful in a lot of cases. And as businesses connected more and more to the net, a lot of that workload and a lot of that threat, instead of being local and during the same time frame the business is operating, started to kind of shift as well, because now your adversaries aren't just coming from local positions. They're coming from, you know, if you're in the US, they're coming from Russia, they're coming from China, they're coming from Iran, they're coming from all these different spots around the globe. And those adversaries know a few things. You alluded earlier in the conversation, they know when we're working and they know when we're not. And they also know that we tend to get thin around weekends, around holidays, around things of that nature. And they sit around in the times when we're fully staffed and we're ready to go sitting on the wall, preparing their plan and preparing their strategy. And then they deploy the strategy when we all go to spend time with our families and when we all go to bed at night and do those types of activities. Because first of all, that's when their time around the globe pops up and it makes more sense for them. But it's also the time when they know our defenses are typically the weakest, our staffing is typically the thinnest. And that means that you have reduced response time, reduced response capabilities, which means that in for a lot of people in IT and cybersecurity, your job doesn't just go eight to four, nine to five, your job goes 24, seven, 365. Because if a server goes down in the middle of the night, you don't get to wait a lot of times till 8am to respond to it and bring it back online. If you have businesses operating out of uh, APAC, if it's a cybersecurity incident, and all of a sudden you guys detect something like command and control activity or exfiltration coming out of your network at three in the morning, guess what? Your cybersecurity team jumps up at three in the morning and you have to respond. You don't get the flexibility and the comfort mm-hmm. of waiting till 9am to log in and go, mm-hmm. All right, I took my shower. I got my coffee. Let's uh, let's see if we can stop these bad guys now that have been operating for six hours in our network. It doesn't work like that. It means that any moment's notice, you need to be not just like trained, rested, ready, and know what to do, but you got to be ready to jump when something happens. And again, most of that stuff's not happening during the day. So people's jobs have extended. And unless you've got that follow the globe or follow the sun mentality <laughs> built into your teams to be able to have coverage 24-7, your teams that normally operate eight to four and then are looking to spend time with their families and have hobbies and things often will get disrupted out of those hours. And so when you start getting pulled away from your family in the middle of the night, well, you don't get to offset your eight to four work just because you had to get up and work for a few hours in the middle of the night. Your eight to four work still needs to get done too. And so the days start to extend, the jobs start to extend, the responsibilities and the roles extend. And that just, again, leads further out and drives us more towards that hitting capacity, hitting the wall, burning out. Let's talk about what can be done both inside and outside the IT team to reduce burnout. You and I have talked a lot in the past about what people inside the IT teams need to do. Let's start with them. What is your advice on helping IT teams reduce this level of burnout and exhaustion? If you had a department and you knew people were were getting a little burned out, or you personally, when you're experiencing burnout, what are some of the things that you do to recenter yourself? Oh, a big one is talk about it. Just make sure you have the conversations to start with. If you have good management and good people around you, they will understand and the workload ebbs and flows. And there's a lot of times when people on my team pick up workload from me because they see flat out I've hit capacity or beyond capacity and can't handle it. But at the same point in time, as my capacity starts to open itself up a little bit, I look around for opportunities to start returning that favor, paying that back forward again and make sure that everybody on my team knows that this is a team endeavor. I don't do personal projects 
projects really very well in the way that I manage. I do team projects. We as a team will accomplish all these things. I may have people that are kind of the point people or the main people leading those projects, but at any point in time, capacity can shift back and forth. Hey, if one project falls behind, guess what? We all pause what we're doing. We're going to go over and we're going to help this other person out. We're going to help bring them back forward again. But it comes down to identifying where those capacity and resource needs are, just like with any business and having to just kind of make those small adjustments here and there to make sure that the pieces of your business that are starting to show cracks get the extra support they need. But a lot of that comes from just identifying the problem. You can do that through conversations. You can do that through just metrics, tracking workload, and just identifying, you know, things like if your help desk has got 10 people and they're handling 500 tickets a month, and all of a sudden their ticket volume goes up to a thousand tickets a month, and you still have the same number of people there, you have to assume that they're doing double the work and you need to check in with those people and see how that's working out for them and whether or not you need to add that additional capacity. And if that's going to be an ongoing increase in volume, you need to judge the fact that that also should mean that somewhere in there, there should be resources available to increase the capacity to the teams that are responding to that because it's unreasonable to have anybody just take on twice the amount of workload and operate under the same standards as they did before. And I think one thing you said is very important that you need to talk about it. And I would imagine that you would encourage not just talking amongst, but also outside of the department, any team leader needs to make sure that they are recognizing the signs of exhaustion and burnout in their team, that they are communicating that to people that they report to and that the people they report to are both listening to and hearing, you know, what's being said. What other things beyond simple technical fixes would you ask people outside of the IT department to do in response to or to help reduce the level of burnout among IT personnel. One of the biggest things that I always push forward against that this can sound, it sounds pretty straightforward, but following the guidelines and, and the policies that are set down, it can be really easy to want to say like, okay, I'm working from home now. I'm going to flip a copy of Steam onto my laptop and let my kid play on it when I'm out of work because it's a laptop and they can sit on the couch and I can watch them while I'm watching TV or cooking dinner or something. Following the, the procedures and the policies and and real basic things that IT departments set down are those policies aren't there to restrict people. They're not there to inhibit people from doing things they want. They're there to protect the interests of the business and to protect the teams that are supporting all of that infrastructure. Shadow IT is one of the biggest problems in IT that's out there nowadays. And that's just people using things in ways that they weren't meant to be used and and are governed to not be used. Implementing new technologies outside of the purview of IT department and asset management and things like that. It all causes undue complexity and it provides undue risk into most of these businesses. But also adds to the workload of individual IT personnel and therefore contributes to burnout. Yeah, absolutely. It means like, you know, if you're going to be the kind of person that's going to throw games up on your laptop, A, if that game gets hacked, has a bad patch, exploited in some way, or you're just letting your kid be on the laptop, what's to say that maybe they're not going outside of the game that you put on there for them? Maybe now all of a sudden they're poking around inside your email and doing other things as well because they're on the machine. Uh, Maybe they're Mm -hmm. installing stuff on their own. They're browsing on the web and all of a sudden they hit up a website and they pick up a piece of malware or some sort of malvertising or something like that. And you've got admin rights on your laptop because we let you have it as an IT department and, you know, because we don't want to restrict you to unnecessarily and stuff like that just just happens and it's a reality and that kind of stuff then involves an IT response because as soon as that laptop stops working, that person's calling up a help desk going, hey, I can't do my job and I have these important reports that are due tomorrow. You need to get this fixed for me. Only to spend hours and hours finding out that it was the user potentially that caused 
the problems in the first place. So, I mean, again, I think the big thing is, is just understanding that work stuff is meant to be for work only, including the equipment, and it needs to be treated with that same level of respect. Personal stuff should not be done on work machines or anywhere near any of the work stuff. That should all be done on personal level devices. Just practicing general care and responsibility around those work connected assets would go a long way to preventing not just incidents, but protecting the company from other outages and just undue risk across the board. I think to me, that'd be the biggest one. Showing, you know, simple and appropriate respect to the personnel of the IT department. Ryan, that may be a bridge too far in this country. Yeah, well, you know, all all long journeys start with a single step, right? <laughs> dare to dream, dare to dream. Well, that's all the time we have this week on Fearless Paranoia. I've, if you are interested in any more information about uh, that survey that Ryan and I were talking about earlier, that will be posted along with the post for this podcast on the Fearless Paranoia website, where you can also access information from all of our previous posts and recordings. If you enjoyed this episode and found it informative, please share us on any social media site you may use. Now there are so many of them and several that I refuse to acknowledge. We'll just leave it at that and move happily on for there. Also remember, you can subscribe to Fearless Paranoia on any of your favorite podcasting platforms. We're basically available on all of them. We do rely on you guys to share this podcast. We don't spend money on advertising because we have no money for advertising. Uh, That's just the way the world works. But any help that you guys can give us, we greatly appreciate. I want to toss in a plug for an upcoming episode we've got. We're going to be talking about our cybersecurity predictions for 2024, things to potentially expect and how that may impact everyone else. There's also going to be one of the things that I'm very, very interested in talking about in the near future after the recent happenings at OpenAI, the future of the security of generative AI and corporate AI, as well as the question of, is shadow AI the new shadow IT? That really sounds like a horrendously gimmicky and buzzword-laden term, but it actually is a real thing and a pretty interesting topic. It's going to be a really fun topic to talk about. So we hope you'll join us for those. And in the meantime, for Fearless Paranoia, I'm Brian. And I'm Ryan. And we'll see you next time. (laughs) 